As we come now before the scripture, if you'd like to read with me, please turn in your Bibles to the very end uh, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 15. Uh, We'll be this morning in Revelation chapter 15. And before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Lord, you've called out that he who has ears, let him hear. And we want that to be true this morning of us. Would you give each one ears to hear? Help us to hear these things, to really take them to heart and to believe what you have told us so that we would find our hope in you. We do trust you and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be this morning in Revelation chapter 15. I want to take the entire chapter. It's not very long, just eight verses. Uh, So this is Revelation chapter 15, beginning here in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked... And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is the word of God. Now, you know me well enough by now to know that my approach to sermons is not to preach on themes or to preach on topics. We don't have, you know, a series that we typically go for. I preach mainly on texts of Scripture, whole texts, often whole books of the Bible. And we do this so that we will really listen to God. Listen to God first and then let the themes kind of bubble up out of that. So today, we're beginning with a new text, 
a new journey through a new book of the Bible. You may remember, if, you're, if you've been with us regularly, a few months ago, we closed our time in the book of Hebrews, um, and then we started into the season of Advent, during which we looked at sections of Isaiah, which has now ended. So today, we've got a brand new slate, and we get to look at a whole new book of the Bible and spend time there, which at least for me makes me a little excited. I've been eager, uh, champing at the bit to really get to this, but I did not want to rush us just to get here. You remember the book of Hebrews took us almost a whole year to get through. And I don't think where we're going will quite take that long, not quite a year, although just as a caveat, if it does take us a year to get through us, that would still be good for us. I mean, what would be the rush? just to get to another book so we can rush through that book. I know, at least for me, maybe this is also true for you, that we can spend so much time being busy, hurrying to get to where we're going that we almost just never pause to be where we are. We spend our whole lives just moving to the next thing. I'm reminded of it in relation to our kids. Sometimes in the grocery store, a strangers will come up and say, oh, your girls are so cute because they are. And, uh, and, and the, the sentence after that is very often, we'll enjoy it because it goes fast. And parenting is hard, and so there are some times that I want to spin through some, some parts of it, but that's a good reminder to enjoy it because it will go fast. We want to take the same approach to God's word to enjoy it because our time goes fast. So for us to go slowly then is not a bad thing, especially when it comes to listening to God speak. We want to really hear. We want to really soak these things up. Now, the book that I am preparing to preach through, to lead us through in these coming months, is long, but we'll only take about half the book, uh, not because we're trying to rush through it. You'll see why, I hope, in the coming uh, weeks. The book that we are about to work our way through is not Revelation. Uh, we're going to be in a particular book in the Old Testament, which I'll share in a moment. Uh, but we're here in the book of Revelation for a particular reason, because I want, instead of beginning at the beginning uh, of, of the story that we're heading through, I want to begin at the end. Now, when I just said that we are not reading through the book of Revelation, I imagine some of you responded to that internally in a few different ways. There may be some who were disappointed. Oh, man, I got kind of excited. Revelation seems, you know, it's sort of exotic. Something about the book of Revelation is a little enticing. There's a sense that we get to kind of pull back the curtain and peek into the unseen. So for some, maybe that's disappointing to not uh, focus as much on that. For others, might feel relief to not be in Revelation, like, whew, kind of dodging a bullet there. For some, the book of Revelation may make us anxious or confused. 
maybe even scared. For some, it, it, it triggers maybe some old thoughts about left, left behind and fears that everyone else is going to get raptured up uh, instead of you. Somehow that idea of rapture has been woven into culture and society for us. There's a tension we know in the book of Revelation. There are lots of things in here that are wonderful, but also a lot that is strange to us. Just here in this one chapter, we see a lot of bizarre things. We see a, an image of a sea that is like glass mixed with fire. In this chapter, there's a reference to this one called the beast. In this chapter, there's these mysterious four living creatures, which we're told earlier in the book, uh, are full of eyes all around and are like a lion and an ox and a man's face and an eagle. And, and that we also see in the book that these creatures, or at least one of them, gives these bowls of wrath to seven angels, and the angels then pour out the bowls of wrath upon the earth. We see here a sanctuary that is smoking. It's a lot to process. It's tough to comprehend all of these things, but I think there's one part of this at least, at least one part for me that I can at least wrap my mind around, that I can comprehend. If you look in the middle of this, you may have noticed that in the middle of all of these almost bizarre things, there is a choir. There's a choir in here, and it's not a choir of angels. It's not a choir of the, of the four living creatures. It's a choir of humans. These are the redeemed sons and daughters of God. These are the, uh, the great multitude from every uh, nation and tribe and tongue and language. These are the ones who have conquered the beast by their faith in Jesus. And this choir, excuse me, is standing next to the fiery, glassy sea, singing. It's a powerful and beautiful image. You can see the lyrics here. It may be set apart jagged in your text. It's in verses 3 and 4. You can see part of what they're singing, at least. They say, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, what I want us to consider this morning is this. Of all the things that this choir could sing, why do they sing this? Of all the things they could sing, why do they sing this? Because surely there's lots of options for songs, right? You know, I mean, just here in our building, we've got hymnals with 600 songs, most of which we don't even get to touch. And, and then it, back in the, you know, the back room with all the, the choir gear in it, there's just filing cabinets full of a jam-packed with hundreds more. So, you know, there's all these songs that could be sung. So why this one? Why choose this song? Why do we choose any song, really? You know, sometimes uh, when we're singing, we choose a song because, you know, we like it. 
it's fun or it's nice, you know, call out your favorite song and we'll sing it. That doesn't quite seem to be the case here. It's not like they took a poll and said, who wants to sing this one? And everybody raised their hands. Uh, it's not just because it's their favorite, which as a side note, by the way, that's also true in our worship here. If you see in the bulletin as you open it or hear a call, a song you don't like, sing it anyway. If it's not your favorite, sing it anyway, because that song's not about you. You're not the one being worshiped. It's worship to God. So it doesn't matter whether it's your favorite song or not. That's sometimes why we choose a song, because it's our favorite or we like it. Sometimes we choose songs because we're able to sing them even. There are sometimes limits of a choir. Those of you that are parts of choirs know this. Sometimes, you know, there's just not enough basses. Or, or, or the, the song's too high for the, for the sopranos and they can't quite hit the notes. Or, or the tempo is too fast or maybe we don't know it well enough or we don't have enough time to work on it. That doesn't seem to be the case here. It's not like they've been revving up and practicing this for a while. So if the song here is not about uh, what's their favorite or what they're able to do, what is it about? It's at least this, I think. Whenever we choose a song to sing... We choose it because it fits the occasion. We know this. You know, at a funeral, we might sing Amazing Grace, but we would not sing the Macarena or Mbop. Oh boy, my song references are old. Uh, you know, at, at Easter time, we would sing maybe Jesus Christ is risen today, but not silent night. Or, or at someone's birthday, we sing happy birthday and not, I don't know, I can't think of one. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. Is that even the whole name? All right, let me move on past that. Somehow, you get the point, that, uh, that the song is fitting to the reason why we're singing. So somehow, what they're singing here is fitting fitting to the occasion here in Revelation. It's interesting also to notice that the choir seems to be singing two songs, if you notice. Some scholars think that there might be just one song with two different names, but I think, and there are many others who think this as well, there are two songs here, if you look very carefully in verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It seems as if then the song of the Lamb is the lyrics that we see in verses 3 and 4. That's, a, that's all the text of part of the song that they're singing. But there's this other song, the song of Moses, the servant of God, whose lyrics are not printed here. They're just named. They sing the song of Moses. Now, why aren't the lyrics printed? Because we see this song somewhere else in Scripture. Why are they singing the song of Moses? What actually is this song? At the end of Moses' life, just as the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land, Moses teaches all the people to sing a song just before they enter. It's the whole chapter of Deuteronomy chapter 32. And he says at the end of it, People, listen. Learn this song. Take it to heart. It is your very, it's your very life. It's a, it's a long song, so we won't look at it all. But it re recounts how the people had been unfaithful to God. 
and it's urging them to renew their obedience to God as they enter into the land. But in the midst of warning them to renew their obedience, there's also an emphasis in this song upon the faithfulness of God. And there's just some lovely parts in it. Let me read a few. Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. There's a long prologue here. He sings, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain and my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like the showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then if we keep going and skip down to verse 10, just one of my favorite lines, he, God, found Israel in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, God encircled him, he cared for him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. These are good things, true things to sing about God. And it's possible that this is the song in which the choir of the multitude sings in Revelation. But I don't think it was this one. This is one of the, this is one of the main songs of Moses, but there's another song of Moses that I think is what they're singing in Revelation. In Hebrew, the song is called the Shirat Hayam, or the Song of the Sea. And I think Revelation 15 is pointing to that particular song. In Revelation 15, we see it building to the Lord and his sanctuary, which is now billowing with smoke so much that no one can enter. We see that there was a beast who was this single ruler who has now been defeated. It's punctuated in Revelation with a series of plagues which are poured out. And then we hear the song of Moses. And all of this is echoing, calling, pointing us back to the book of Exodus. Exodus. That's where we will be in these coming months. We're not going to take the whole book. We're just going to take the first part of it up to chapter 15, which is the song. This song comes after the Lord had brought the people out of Egypt in the great exodus. This song comes after they'd crossed the Red Sea and then the Lord folded the Red Sea back over Pharaoh's army. This comes after the Lord had saved Israel, not because Israel was good, but because the Lord is merciful. And their first response when they come out of Egypt is to sing. Moses teaches them a song, the song of Moses, the Shirat Hayam, the song of the sea. It's a very long psalm. Again, I won't read all of this, but if you want to turn and look with me, it's in Exodus chapter 15. Let me read the first verses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. 
The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The song goes on. And and I know this is a heavy topic to sing about, that a whole army would just be shattered, that enemies would be sunk into the sea. But the tune of this song, whatever it was, was not dirgy. The song was upbeat. We know at the end in verse 20, it says, Miriam, the prophetess, sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went after her with tambourines and dancing and sang. Somehow, as they were singing this song of destruction of Pharaoh's army, they weren't dirging, they were dancing. This is a celebration of God, who is their rescuer. So then at the end of the Bible now, where we are this morning in the book of Revelation, as John is peering into the heavens, and he hears this chorus sing, he hears them sing this same song of Moses. They're not going to sing the flying purple people eater stuff. They want to sing a celebration song of the Exodus, now even thousands of years later, because this Exodus song is fitting to their occasion, because the Exodus is happening again. The Lord is in fullness, flexing his strength. He is conquering his enemies in a final way and finally fully saving his people. At the end, we see the greatest final exodus when the freedom of God's people is finally complete. So in a sense then, we could say that the whole word of God, the whole Bible is exodus shaped. The whole Bible is exodus shaped. That's the overarching story of scripture. That they start in a good land of Egypt but then become enslaved for the people of Exodus, but now for the whole people of the Bible, the slavery is not under Pharaoh, but under Satan, the beast. The slavery is not in Egypt, but the slavery is in our own sin, and we are afflicted, oppressed, crushed by this harsh master that is our sin. And in the misery and the ache, the agony of this sin that we have inflicted upon ourselves and that now owns us, we see that recur throughout the course of the Bible. And you can hear this drumbeat pounding, pounding through the pages. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. It on goes and on goes throughout until Christ comes. And Jesus is this new and greater Moses. Jesus comes with this massive breakthrough of signs and wonders that culminate with a terrible outpouring of blood. And Jesus breaks the chains of the old master and sets his people free so that they'll be able to come worship God in the new kingdom of his son.
The Bible is Exodus-shaped. And in some ways, seeing the Bible this way is the key to unlocking how to understand various things. So some people, critics especially of the Bible, may think of the Bible as just a, a book of moralism, a book of do's and don'ts, laws and rules. And we know those things do exist in the Bible. Laws and rules are in here. But even the commandments of God fit within this Exodus shape. You know, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, there's a little prologue, a little beginning that come before the actual commandments, which Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these things, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he begins with the commands, you shall have no other God before me. So these commands aren't just arbitrary, you know, just do this because I said so. We're sometimes guilty of doing that as parents. Just listen because, uh, because I'm frustrated and tired and just listen to me. That's not what the Lord is doing here when he calls us, commands us. The Lord says, I brought you out of slavery. And now as I bring you into this new land, this is what it looks like to live free from slavery in Egypt. Now that you are under a new and better master, this is what the exodus-shaped life looks like. So that's my hope and my prayer for me and for us in these coming months. That as we journey through Egypt and then out of Egypt, we would better see the exodus shape, and that we ourselves would also become people who are exodus shaped. That as the Lord draws us out of the slavery of our sin to worship him, to follow him, we would grow in our love for him. That in these coming months, in the pages of Exodus, we would see our God in the fullness of his power, See our God in the fullness of his wisdom. See our God in the fullness of his faithfulness. See our God in the, in the fullness of his great wrath. See our God in the fullness of his greater mercy. See our God in his glorious triumph. We would see that there is no God like the Lord, majestic in holiness, that he would mold us more into a people who are his own, who are his own exodus-shaped people. I want that. And this is not something we have to wait for it to happen to us. We can actually begin to strive for that now, strive to be more shaped like that now. In Jewish prayer books, even today, Many Jews still pray the Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, this whole song here in Exodus chapter 15. They still pray it every morning. And that's not because these words are somehow magic words or because it's, you know, some sort of, you know, homework daily that if you don't do it, you're going to fail the class. To sing these words are a reminder of who we are and a reminder of who our God is. You have to wonder how the Lord might change you, really change you, 
if you began each day before you even set your feet on the floor out of bed, if you began each day with a prayer of the words of this song, even just the first few words, if you began with these words, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. If you trust in Jesus, you are part of the Exodus. So sing these truths of God to yourself. Sing them again and again. You need to be reminded of them until, until the day in which you join the great choir with all the saints who are worshiping the Lord, standing around the glassy sea, singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Nothing else would be more fitting to that occasion. Would you pray with me? Ah, Lord, it's true that for your people, you are our strength and our song. And we need both of those things. This strength to do this is not ours, it's yours. Lord, would you make us an Exodus-shaped people? As we embrace this, we acknowledge that we are dependent upon you. You must be the one to bring us out. And Lord, we trust that you do and you will. Lord, now as we come to your table, help us to really hear and to believe the song of the Lamb, to feed upon the body and blood of the Lamb. Lord, we know that you are not physically present here, at least we're not physically present with you yet, but you spiritually are here with us as we receive these things by faith. Lord, would you set aside this bread and this juice as holy things so that you would be honored and that we would be nourished. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.